Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, Lord, I pray for your help. Uh, Lord, if you don't build a house, uh, those who build it labor in vain. And so, Lord, would you build this house? Uh, Lord, may this labor not be in vain uh, tonight. So, Lord, use your word. Use your spirit to uh, build our faith or perhaps to give us faith. Uh, Lord, that we might begin to experience this plentiful redemption. Do this in our lives, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, <clears throat> this morning I was out at Rapid Run, our other campus, did two, uh, preached twice there, so if I just fall over about halfway out, um, forgive me, I, I really don't know how Robert does it. Um, but yes, we are in a series on Jonah. Last week we covered Jonah chapter 1, and we saw that uh, Jonah received a call that was overwhelming to him, uh, that he was called to go to Nineveh uh, to, to preach to them and expose them to, to the God of Israel, his God. And so uh, where Jonah was, he was in Israel, Nineveh was over here, and he fled on a boat uh, through the Mediterranean Sea, he was hoping to get to Tarshish, which is in Spain. So that's like over there against the stained glass window. That's where he was headed. That's where Jonah was going, and, and, and God pursued him, sent a storm, uh, they ended up throwing him overboard, and then uh, at the very end of chapter 1 it says, and he was swallowed by fish. And so th t tonight's chapter, chapter 2, is about Jonah and the fish. And you might have come tonight, and maybe you've heard about Jonah your whole life, and you've had questions about, is that real? Was he really swallowed by a whale or a big fish? Is that even possible? Or perhaps you're, you're uh, new to church, you're new to the Christian faith, and, uh, and, and being exposed to the Christian faith, and you just flat don't believe it, that this is a great metaphor. Well, I want to just address that real quickly before we get into the bulk of chapter 2. Uh, the first thing I would say is if we look back at 2 Kings chapter 14, we see uh, that Jonah is a prophet. And if you look, read through 1 Samuel, 1 Kings, 1 Chronicles, you'll see the history of the monarchy for the, for the, for the nation of Israel. And frequently you'll hear, you'll hear about one king, that king would die, and they talk about another king. Well, frequently when, it would attend, when a, uh, a king would be attended by a prophet... So during a king's rule, they would be a sign that God would call a prophet to serve alongside of them to lead the nation. And when you hear about King Jeroboam, a king of Israel, a king of the north, uh, the prophet who attends his ministry is Jonah. And that's what we see in 2 Kings chapter 14. And in fact, we see that Jonah actually did his job. <laughs> he spoke on behalf of the Lord to the people. He's also mentioned in Matthew 12, 16, and Luke 11. By Jesus. Uh, Jonah is on the lips of Jesus. And when Jonah is referred to, he's not referred to uh, for his just general everyday ministry. His everyday work of being a prophet. He's referred to as being uh, the, the prophet who is in the belly of a whale. And so Jesus saw that Jonah was a historical figure. And that this historical event actually happened. But this might not be enough for you. You might be sitting there saying, okay, that, might, that sounds great. But we can't prove that this actually happened. In fact, uh, we can prove scientifically that it's highly unlikely at best and impossible at worst. If that's what you're saying, I hear you. I really, really hear you. But let me challenge your presupposition just a touch. Essentially what you're saying by saying that is that, um, uh, that something has to be proven by science in order for it to be true. But can I ask you a question? What if science can't account for all truth? 
One author, Jaron Barr's uh, professor, he says this. He says, uh, one of the prominent features of the modern scientific culture of which we are a part is that it tends to doubt religious statements. To speak of God or of miracles or of life after death is to speak of things which are unprovable. Because they're not accessible to science, it is claimed they cannot be true. End quote. So I would posit to you that to believe that science can account for all truth is itself a faith-based commitment in the same way that a Christian has a faith-based commitment that miracles can actually happen. Maybe this sounds harsh. I don't want to be too hard on you because uh, if you have a hard time believing in miracles, you should. That's why they're miracles. And in Matthew chapter 28, we see some people who see a miracle. Uh, The disciples see the risen Christ. And when they see the risen Christ, in Matthew 28, there's this real short line that says, And when they saw him, some worshipped him, and some doubted. So here you have the disciples, the ones who had spent the most time with Jesus in his earthly ministry, and they doubted him. They could see Jesus, they could touch Jesus, and they still have a hard time believing that this is the risen Son of God. And I think this incident is a warning to some of is a warning to us and an encouragement. It's a warning because it's easy for us to think that modern scientific people are the only ones who struggles with miracles, but it's not true. Less modern and less scientific people clearly did too, even the ones who were closest to Jesus. I think it's also an encouragement. It's an encouragement for us to be patient. Because some some of these apostles who doubted Jesus when they saw him rise from the dead, they ended up believing in the resurrection. And they began to pin the New Testament. They began to found the early church. So doubters, skeptics, we hope uh, that this posture that you'll find in our church, that you'll find patient people who will give you room for your doubt. But we're going to call you to doubt your doubts and take Jesus at his word. Now it's time to get into Jonah. Uh, chapter 2, if you see in verse 1, it says, uh, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of a fish. We just dealt with a fish. So let's pick up his prayer in verse 2. He's in the belly of a fish, and he was saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And he answered me, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep sea surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out. Upon the dry land. The word of the Lord. What we see here in chapter 2 is what's hard to do in normal life is easy to do in crisis. What's hard to do in normal life is easy to do in crisis. Let me give you a few examples. 
Uh, one is uh, when code enforcement cracks down on you to take care of your home. Uh, I have a, a neighbor who bought an old house and uh, began to renovate it and did all the renovations on the outside, or on the, all the renovations on the inside. Uh, meanwhile, all kinds of code was being, uh, was being violated on the exterior of the house, and somebody called her in. It wasn't me, because I really like her. I really believe her that she's going to get to it, because she did some serious work on the inside. But in the back of her house is a garage. She doesn't use the garage, because the garage had a hole in it about the size of this table uh, in the roof, and uh, there were critters everywhere in that thing. I know there was. You could hear it standing next to it. And somebody called it in on her, and... Uh, and real quick, she had a dumpster in the back, and that garage was down in a hurry. But see, what, was, what she was doing in normal life, she actually took serious in crisis. I really like her, by the way. She's not here. Um, but I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, not, uh, I'm not upset that the garage is, is gone either. Uh, the, the other is an, is an old neighbor of mine. An old neighbor of mine had two small children. Uh, he was in his uh, late 40s, and um, he had a heart attack. He didn't die from the heart attack, but it was a scare. It woke him up. And I remember him saying, he was like, man, it was really hard to eat well and to exercise. But then you have a heart attack, and it gets a lot easier. Then I thought about um, me my freshman year. I had a really hard time studying the first semester. I got put on academic probation, and my parents threatened uh, to remove their financial support. And I, all of a sudden, it was really easy to study second semester. But you know what I mean. That what's hard to do in normal life becomes a lot easier in crisis. The same is true with prayer. If you get in a room with religious people, especially American religious people, and ask them to make resolutions on what they want their life to look out into the future, I bet you the very thing on the top of the list would be prayer. That's what they'd be most quick to make a resolution towards. That's what they're most dissatisfied in their lives. I'd also venture to say, if you brought that same group of people in six months later, and you said, how'd you do on the resolutions? The one that would be the worst would be prayer. So somehow, we as religious people, we as Christians, we want to pray more, but it's the hardest thing for us to do. Why? I think it's because it's really hard. (laughs) It's hard for us as 21st century Americans, Westerners, to slow down. It's really hard for us to be quiet. But this is what prayer demands. Yet prayer can become really easy when you get in crisis. Remember the sailors last week? They prayed in a hurry. Now they prayed to their pagan gods when the the storm came upon them. But they prayed again at the end. Remember? They prayed at the end and they prayed to the God who created the waves and the wind. But you know who didn't pray during the storm or after the storm? Jonah. Jonah. Jonah the prophet didn't pray. And he remains prayerless until he gets in the belly of this big fish. But when you make your dwelling with gastrointestinal fish acid, it'll make you pray. And we're no different. God has to let us get to a place of distress so that we might talk to him. And when we see Jonah's prayer here, I think we can, there's really two sections. Uh, One is the distress of Jonah, verses 2 to 6. And then we have the deliverance of Jonah in 7 to 10. Those are my two points tonight. But in, 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 let's, let's look at the distress of Jonah. The distress of Jonah, I think we can really pull two things out of there that, that have great intersection for us tonight. The first one uh, is found in verse 3. The first one is to acknowledge the source of your distress. Notice where Jonah finds the cause or source of his distress. 
He says in verse 3, you, talking to the Lord, you cast me into the deep. Well, wait, wait a minute. We, we just did chapter 1. I thought it was the sailors who cast him into the deep. I thought they were the ones who threw him overboard. And it was. But Jonah finds the source behind the means. See, the sailors were the means by which the source, God, got him off the boat. And we see all throughout the narrative that God is the one who's sovereignly orchestrating Jonah's life. Even the tragic parts. And Jonah acknowledges the source of his distress in another place too. Look at the the second half of verse 3. He says, all your waves and your billows passed over me. He says, your waves, your billows. Billows means a large mass of water passed over me. He was one to say that this wasn't the Mediterranean Sea. This was, these were God's waters. There was a personality, there was a creator behind the waves that he was struggling against. He knew where to attribute his suffering. Do you? There's a temptation for all of us to attribute suffering to a person, to politics, to the economy, to a situation. I think the temptation was with Jonah too. See, Jonah could have said, um, if Assyria wasn't so evil, if they hadn't oppressed us so terribly, uh, if we weren't slaves to them, I would have gladly gone to Nineveh. This is a serious fault that I'm in the belly of this whale. Jonah could also have said, if the weather wasn't so bad there in chapter 1, the sailors could have got to the shore, which is what they wanted to do, and drop Jonah off. They didn't want to throw Jonah overboard. They wanted to take him to dry land. So he could have said, this is the weather's fault that I'm in the belly of this whale. He could have also said, the sailors were the ones who threw me overboard. Those savages. It's their fault. But Jonah doesn't. He doesn't follow this line of reasoning. He sees things through a God-centered worldview. So friends, your boss is not the ultimate source behind your suffering at work. Friends, your spouse and your children are not the ultimate source for the dysfunction in your home. If you're single, it's not ultimately because Mr. or Mrs. Wright won't choose you. The ultimate reason that suffering happens in our life is that God sees fit for us to endure the suffering he puts in our lap. I know that raises a lot of questions. But I also know there should be a great sense of comfort to you. That the suffering we endure is not haphazard. It's not God just arbitrarily let you have a bad season of life. God's up to something in your life. He's a source of our suffering, ultimately. He's keeping us. He's preserving us. But the source of Jonah's distress gets a little more complicated. On one hand, he knows it's God who's behind his present suffering, but he doesn't sidestep his culpability. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, he says, in that, 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 that first line, he says, I am driven away from your sight. What does that mean? It means that he's confessing his sin. He's like, I, I know, I've been driven away from your sight because of what I was doing. I was running away from your call to me. Jonah knows full well that it's his fault that he's in this mess. And he knows that God is the one who's lovingly disciplining with the sea and with the storm and now with the fish. 
So friends, when we're in distress, it's, it's necessary. We, we've got to admit that God is ultimately behind it. But it's also proper for us to repent when we're suffering. But the problem is that in suffering, uh, we're, it's probably the least likely circumstances in our life for us to actually repent. Because when we suffer, uh, we're, we're putting two feet in justice. And we're looking to blame someone else for the suffering that we're now enduring. And if you plant your feet in justice, you're going to be sunk. Because we don't deserve anything. But that's really hard to see when you're hurting. So we see that God is the source of our distress. And we also see that we've got to be willing to see our role in it. That's what Jonah teaches us. That's what we see about distress here. The second thing I really want us to see as intersecting our lives about distress is to not sugarcoat our distress. Jonah's not in the belly of the whale saying, you know, I just got some seaweed wrapped around my head. But other than that, I'm all right. He uses some pretty graphic language. Look at verse 2. He uses this word sheol. We don't use this word, but sheol means the resting place of the dead. Jonah's saying, I've got one foot in the grave. Jonah's saying, my life is a living hell. And then the the language just gets more graphic. Verses 3 to 6. He uses some words that are true at face value, but they're also used as metaphors. Look at verse 3. Flood surrounded me. The waves passed over me. Verse 5, the waters closed in over to take my life. Verse 5, weeds were wrapped upon my head. Verse 6, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. See, all these phrases are really saying the same thing, aren't they? Jonah's saying, I'm utterly helpless. He's not whitewashing his problems, and neither should we. For instance, if our lives are a lot like Sheol, if we've got one foot in the grave, we've got to be honest about it. But most of us are too optimistic about it. We're kind of like the guy who jumps off the Empire State Building. He gets to the 50th floor, and somebody asks him, "Uh, how are you doing? How's it going? And he responds, so far, so good. (laughs) But he's not, it is so far, so good, but it's about to get really bad. And he knows it. See, when we're in the middle of distress, it's a lot easier to kind of put our best. It's it's easy, as I say, very frequently, it's easy to put our best foot forward. When I'm in distress, I usually want to say, look how wonderful my children are. Look how wonderful my wife is. Look at this great church that I'm a pastor of. Look at my beautiful home. Look at my education. All that, I'm just trying to distract you from the fact I've got distress over here. You may know about it, but you might not. And what Jonah tells us here is not to sugarcoat our problems, but to be upfront and honest about them. See, Jonah could have done the same thing. He could have said, hey, look, 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 look. I'm son of Amittai. I'm a prophet. There are not many of us. God God didn't ordain many of us in the Old Testament, and I'm one of them. Oh, but, oh, yeah, I'm in the belly of a fish. Or, oh yeah, that, that one time when I, I was, I, when I ran from God's call because I'm a racist. I don't want to tell you about that. Let me tell you about what happened yesterday. But the fish keeps Jonah from this kind of foolishness and it frees him to be honest about his situation. See, this is the distress of Jonah. And it's graphic, verses 1 to 6. And just when you can't handle it anymore, he starts talking about deliverance of the Lord. 
in verses 7 to 10. We see a little hint of deliverance in verse 4 when it says, Yet again shall I look upon your holy temple. But the theme of deliverance really picks up verses 7 to 9. Jonah uses six statements. But I want to stop for just a second. If you took verses 7 to 9, you printed them out, or you had uh, one of these wonderful calligraphers in our, uh, in our audience tonight, uh, one of the people, wonderful calligraphers in our church, if you had them write these three verses down for you and you put them on your fridge and they were just such an encouragement to you, you just loved it. I would also want you to put in a big sheet of paper right above it or right beneath it, Jonah said these things in the belly of a whale. Because Jonah's deliverance happened in the belly of a whale. And his deliverance, the place, the place that should have been his death was actually the place of his deliverance. We see what he was delivered to. He was delivered to God and he was delivered to his fellow man. Kind of that love God, love neighbor thing Jesus talked about. Uh, that's what we see really in verses 7 to 9. He was delivered to God. You see it in verse 7. Verse 7, it says that he remembered the Lord. It remembers a significant word for us. Because that means at one point before the belly of the fish, Jonah knew the Lord. But at some point before, also before Jonah entered the belly of the fish, he had forgotten him. See, Jonah didn't fully understand grace. And he was a prophet. So friends, if Jonah, who's a prophet, doesn't understand grace, why do we think we do? See, oftentimes we think we understand grace because our behavior is on the up and up. We think we understand grace because we know that Jesus died for us and he rose again. We know that intellectually. We've got positive vibes, positive feelings as of late. So we must understand grace. But that's misplacing our trust. We're just self-deceived. See, Martin Luther understood this. And here's what he says in, 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 in his, um, his commentary in Galatians. He says this. He says, I must hearken to the gospel, which teaches me not what I ought to do, for that is the proper office of the law, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me. He suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. The gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into our heads continually. So what's Martin Luther really saying? He said, you never move past the gospel. What's needed is not to learn something new. What's needed is to remember what we already know in the gospel. And sometimes it's going to take the distress of being swallowed by a fish to wake us up to the fact that we've forgotten it. And that's what happened for Jonah. He was delivered unto the Lord. But he's also delivered unto other people. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Who does Jonah have in mind when he said those who pay regard to vain idols? You know who he has in mind? The Ninevites. The people that he thought were beyond the pale of grace, all of a sudden now, he sees them as within the pale. What happened? Well, how did Jonah wake up? How did he wake up to the fact that he was so self-righteous? What well, was the fish? 
somehow being in the belly of the fish, he's been delivered from his bigotry. His racist tendencies are eroding before our eyes. But don't you remember the Jonah of chapter 1? He's the one who ran from Nineveh when he was called to preach there. But now he's singing a much different song because he sees that the Ninevites actually have hope. And friends, when we're delivered unto Jesus, it doesn't just affect our relationship with him. It also reflects our, it also impacts our relationship with one another, especially those who are different than us. See, it's easy to see this whole thing of race as a political issue because that's what we're exposed to day in and day out. It's hard to get beyond it as being a political issue. But it's first and foremost not a political issue. It's first and foremost a gospel issue. And that's what we see in verse 8. It's addressed by the gospel. And this is where the gospel gets really personal with us and, and it calls us into question. It asks us questions like this. How are we seeing our long-held dispositions towards other races. How are they being revealed to us? How are they being exposed? It asks us questions like, what's Jesus asking us to do in order to be delivered from these prejudices? And we need to ask ourselves these questions and again and again, just like we need to hear the gospel. You know why? Because Jonah chapter 4, Jonah the racist comes back. Jonah's really mad because we're going to see in chapter 3 that the Ninevites actually do repent. In chapter 4, Jonah's mad about it. So why, does he, why is he going back and forth here? Why is he oscillating so? It's because these questions weren't on the forefront of his mind. We need the Holy Spirit through his word to ask us these tough questions again and again so that we might repent and move forward in faith. So we see he's delivered to God, verse 7, he remembers the Lord. We see in verse 8, he sees that, the, that those who worship pagans are actually within the pale of, of God's grace if they repent. But then he closes it in verse 9. He closes it with five words, his prayer. He says that salvation belongs to the Lord. Five words, salvation belongs to the Lord. I had an Old Testament professor. An Old Testament professor said that um, all the Bible can be summarized in Jonah chapter 9, chapter 2, verse 9, B. Five words. And as I was thinking about this verse this week, I think Jesus' ministry can be summarized by these five words. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You know what else is summarized by these five words? Your life, if you're a Christian. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah didn't say, uh, when he gets uh, to the end of his prayer, he doesn't say, I'm saved. Nor does he say, God and I cooperated with each other so that I might have salvation. Rather, he gives all the credit to the Lord. He knows that the Lord planned and executed every detail of his deliverance. What Jonah saw is that all the resources necessary to procure his salvation are found in God, not within himself. He understood that the resources that he brought to the table were sin and death and rebellion, corruption, idolatry. But the resources found in the Lord. He knew that the Father had planned this. He didn't know this, but he had a, a, had a sense of someone outside himself was going to be the bridge between him and the Lord. He knew that something was going to have to bring this to bear. 
He sees all the resources necessary. Salvation is found in the Lord. All those resources are found within God himself and not in him. And so you want to clap for Jonah and be like, oh, what a changed man. I'm so, this is such a great testimony that we see here in Jonah. Kind of sounds like my life. If that's you, you're too optimistic. Because if you were to read this really closely, you know what you find? That Jonah uses the first person pronoun, I, ten times. He uses the first person possessive pronoun, my, seven times. So 17 times in eight verses, Jonah's referring to himself. See, Jonah's not fully repentant. And the rest of the book is just going to to prove this because Jonah continues to resist. He continues to drag his feet. He continues to pout. And you don't see any joy in Jonah. So this figure of Jonah is not this clean-cut figure who was bad, God intervened, and he lived happily ever after. The figure of Jonah is just like this prayer. It's really messy. He's really messy. This might be confusing at first, but I think it'll end up being an encouragement if it lands on you. Because what it says is that I don't need to be fully repentant for God to show his grace to me. What it says is that we don't have to, that our faith doesn't have to be rock solid in order for God to accept us. Because we're saved by the grace of Jesus alone. And this grace, you can define it as an undeserved gift from an unobligated giver. Let me say that again. Grace is an undeserved gift from an unobligated giver. Think about these three examples. The first one is uh, of a parent. Uh, The parent's got a rebellious child, uh, a stiff-necked child, an ungrateful child, a disobedient child. Uh, Maybe you're thinking about yourself like, oh yeah, I was that way not that long ago. Or maybe you as a parent are thinking like, yep, I had one or more of those at my house. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And think about that this parent uh, just continues, with this child just continues to shower their favor upon them, continues to support them financially and emotionally, even though the child doesn't receive it or doesn't show any gratitude. You might say, well, that's a great picture of grace. Not really. Now, the way that they're being treated is undeserved, but you're not an unobligated giver as a parent. You're an obligated giver, both morally and legally. (laughs) You're, You're obligated to show that kind of favor. Your parents. So this isn't the perfect illustration of grace. Now think about this. Maybe, uh, maybe if, if you're one, in one of our neighborhood groups and you've had a stellar neighborhood group leader, you just thought that they've done an amazing job leading your group. And you get to the end of the year and, 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 and somebody in your group says, hey, let's pull some money and let's, let's, let's buy something for them. Like something really nice. You might say, well, that's a great illustration of grace. Not really. Because the neighborhood group leader deserved it. Now, you're unobligated as the giver. No one said you have to give a, 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 a gift. I'm not telling you this now uh, through the back door. But, I, um, but you're, you are unobligated, but they are deserving. So what would be an illustration of someone who's undeserving and un- an undeserved gift to, from an unobligated giver? Think about this. Maybe uh, you live in a, in a uh, I call it a multi-family housing unit. You can say apartment. Uh, you live in an apartment, or maybe you live in a condo, maybe you live in a duplex, but you share walls with somebody else. And you share walls with somebody that everybody in your, in your building can't stand. They're obnoxious. 
they play their music real loud. When anybody ever goes to them, you knock on the door, they answer it, and you say, hey, can you please turn the music down? They said, nope, I'll turn it up. That same person, anytime anyone else in your building plays music, they run, this person who likes it really loud, runs to their door, knocks on it, they open it up, and he says, turn it off. And then something bad happens to him. He gets really sick. And you begin to show him favor. You begin to run errands for him. You begin to make sure that he's got meals. Now see, that's grace. Because this jerk of a a housemate that you have is an undeserving, he doesn't deserve the gift. And you're an unobligated giver. And friends, this begins to be a shadow of what we see in the reality of the grace of Jesus towards you. See, we're all undeserving. Jonah was undeserving. I'm undeserving. You're undeserving of the grace that's given to us. And God is an unobligated giver. We were his enemies. We had offended him. Yet he pursued us and his one and only son who lived lived a perfect life, died and paid for our debt and rose again to defeat sin, death, and hell. That's his gift to you. That's the grace that you needed as a rebel. And you might know all those things to be true, but they don't make any difference in your life. It's either because you don't see yourself as all that undeserving. You think you're pretty deserving. Kind of like the the guy we read about in Luke 18. Or you do see yourself as very undeserving, but you, you can't imagine that God's actually committed to you. It's hard for you to even comprehend his love for you because you are so in tune with how messed up you are. Well, both sets of people don't understand the gospel. And that's why we need it continually. That's why Jonah needed it continually. Because we don't deserve God's grace, yet he's completely committed to us. And he's going to pursue us to the ends of the earth to save us from our selfishness and our bigotry. Let's pray together. Lord, if you did this for Jonah, we know that you'll do it for us. And Lord, I, I, um, as a pastor... I ask that you would save me from my selfishness and my bigotry. Lord, even if it means I have to have a season of suffering like Jonah. Lord, help us to want your salvation more than anything else in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.